This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. It feels like we're all being told to go on this diet, take that supplement. Ozempic will give you depression, but you know what'll cure that? Weed. Or you could try to balance your hormones. At Science Versus, we're like, what the f*** is going on? Forget the crap online and listen to Science Versus. Just the facts. Oh, and a bunch of stupid jokes. What is a ghost's favorite fruit? Booberries. That's Science VS. New season out on Spotify soon. October 1st, 1919. It was the first game of the World Series. Over 30,000 fans packed into Redland Field in Cincinnati to cheer on the hometown Reds as they took on the Chicago White Sox. It was the first ever world championship appearance for the Reds, and the fans were enraptured. It was a beautiful day for baseball as the teams took the field. After an uneventful first half inning, the fans got to their feet as their Reds were at bat. Reds leadoff Maury Rath stepped into the batter's box. As he took a practice swing, Rath looked down and made eye contact with his opponent, White Sox pitcher Eddie Sycott. The 35-year-old Sycott was one of the best pitchers in baseball at that time, a 29-game winner with a nearly unhittable knuckleball that made batters look foolish as they swung haplessly. Rath was prepared for a tough at-bat. The first pitch was a strike. The crowd got louder. The anticipation was rising. Rath readied himself in the batter's box for the second pitch. Sycott entered the windup reared back, and threw. The ball landed squarely between Maury Rath's shoulder blades. The crowd booed. Traveling White Sox fans were shocked. How could their star pitcher, who had only hit two players the entire season, have started the World Series by plunking the first batter? How could he make such a huge mistake? But it wasn't a mistake. Sycott had hit the batter on purpose. It was just the beginning of a conspiracy to throw the World Series. Welcome to Sports Criminals, a ParCast original. Every week, we dive into the dark side of sports history and look at athletes who not only broke the law, but broke the rules and covenants of their sport. We'll also uncover how their actions impacted the history of the sport they played. I'm Tim Johnson. And I'm Carter Roy. You can find episodes of Sports Criminals and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream Sports Criminals for free on Spotify, just open the app and type Sports Criminals in the search bar. At ParCast, we are grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. Today, we begin our look at the 1919 Black Sox scandal. 
The Chicago White Sox were a powerhouse of the American League in the late 1910s. But in 1919, the team became embroiled in one of the biggest sports scandals of the century when it was revealed that players were paid to throw the World Series. This week, we'll explore how the White Sox players became involved in the scheme and how it was eventually discovered. Next week, we'll cover the fallout of the scandal and the consequences the players faced. In the early fall of 1919, the Chicago White Sox were arguably the best team in the American League. Going into the final week of the season, they had a four-game lead over the Cleveland Indians. All signs pointed to them winning the pennant and facing off with the Cincinnati Reds in the 16th annual World Series. The team was an offensive powerhouse led by corner outfielder Shoeless Joe Jackson. Jackson had a 351 batting average and 96 runs batted in. He also hit seven home runs during the 1919 season, placing him among the best batters in the American League. Jackson had helped the White Sox win their first World Series in 1917 before missing most of the next season working in a shipyard so he wouldn't be drafted into World War I service. But it wasn't all Jackson. They also had the best leadoff hitter in Eddie Collins, the winningest pitcher in knuckleballer Eddie Sycott, and one of the best defensive infielders in Buck Weaver. It was a stacked team, ready to bring the World Series championship back to the south side of Chicago. However, some of the players were cooking up a scheme, a scheme that would forever alter the assumed integrity of America's pastime. On September 8th, 1919, the White Sox took a train east to begin their final leg of the season with games against the Washington Senators, the Philadelphia Athletics, the New York Yankees, and the Boston Red Sox. This was surely the most difficult stretch of games of the season, but they only needed to win a few to officially clinch the American League pennant. Star pitcher Eddie Sycott was sitting in a train car watching the Midwest fly past with his teammate, first baseman Chick Gandle, when the topic of the 1918 World Series came up. Throughout the baseball-playing world, there were rumors that the previous year's World Series between the Boston Red Sox and the Chicago Cubs was fixed. Both Gandal and Sycott had apparently heard whispers that Cubs players were paid $10,000 each to purposely throw the series. These rumors were cloaked in mystery. No one knew who paid for the fix or which players were on the take. But many players and fans in 1919 believed it because it wasn't out of the ordinary. Now, fixing games had been around as long as professional sports had. The very first World Series in 1903 between the Boston Americans and the Pittsburgh Pirates was believed to be rigged, though the rumor tends to be that a player was offered a substantial payout but refused. And in the 16 years that followed, rumors of fixes continued to follow baseball despite the efforts of team owners. But as Chick Gandle saw it, fixing a series was a quick way for a professional baseball player to make some money on the side. And he wanted a piece of that action because his financial situation was tenuous. He was making much less than what star pitcher Eddie Sycott was, even though he was an accomplished player himself. Gandel blamed the team's owner, Charles Comiskey, for his perceived low pay. As the 1919 season progressed and Gandel heard rumors that Cubs players had made 10 grand fixing the series, 
doing the same seemed quite lucrative. Well, Gandal and Sycott were good friends. Well, they often played billiards together after games. He felt safe approaching Sycott about possibly throwing the World Series should they make it. That afternoon on the train supposedly wasn't the first time Gandal had brought up the possibility to Sycott. He had mentioned the idea almost jokingly throughout the season. This time, however, was different. This time, Gandal actually had money behind him. Gandal had taken the initiative to approach famed Boston gambler Joseph J. Sport Sullivan, although he alleged that Sullivan was the one who approached him. Sullivan had enough connections among high-profile gamblers to fund an enterprise like fixing the World Series. If Gandal could get enough players on board, enough to impact the games decisively, the money would be there. All they had to do was play poorly enough, and they would walk away with a huge payday. But Sycott shook his head. He wasn't interested. It was too risky. The money too uncertain, and the game itself too unpredictable. Even if a large portion agreed to fix the series, there was always the chance the White Sox could win anyway. Baseball was simply too difficult to control. But Gandal persisted. He reminded Sycott of his family and his mortgage, reminded him of his biggest fears. Sycott was a 35-year-old pitcher. His career would end at the first sign of a decline. This might be his last chance to make real money as a professional athlete. Sycott let Gandal's words sink in, and by the end of the train ride, Sycott promised to think about it. He didn't want to commit to anything, but he was open to the idea. Gandal had a point, and Sycott couldn't deny it. Eddie Sycott had won a league-leading 29 games for the Chicago White Sox in the 1919 season, fooling batters with a vicious knuckleball that moved sharply and unpredictably as it careened towards the plate. He was second in the league in earned run average that year and led all of baseball in complete games and innings pitched. But he was also one of the oldest players on the White Sox at age 35. His time as a professional athlete would soon come to a close, and he knew it. He also had an injury scare towards the end of the season, battling a chronic sore shoulder. While his salary was good for the times, it was a far cry from what professional athletes are paid today. His $8,000 a year in 1919 pay, equivalent to a little over $120,000 today, made him the eighth highest paid player in the American League. It was by far the biggest paycheck he'd ever received, but it wouldn't be nearly enough to live on once his baseball career ended. His wife had also just given birth to their third child, Eddie Jr., and he had recently purchased a Michigan farm for his entire extended family to live on. There was no pension plan for former baseball players at that time. The realities of retirement and providing for his family afterward were forefront in Sycott's mind as his team prepared for the World Series matchup against the Reds. So when Gandal approached him with a proposition that could score him more than an entire year's salary in a matter of days, Sycott must have felt pressured to hear him out. In mid-September of 1919, the Chicago White Sox rolled into the Northeast and went on a tear, winning five of their next six games against the Washington Senators and Philadelphia Athletics. With their American League pennant all but assured, Gandal continued to pester Sycott about his proposition. 
On September 17, 1919, while the White Sox were in New York City preparing for a three-game match against the Yankees, Sycott was visited by Gandal in his Ansonia hotel room. Time was running out, and Gandal wanted to make one last pitch. Gandal wasn't alone. Joining him were two teammates he had recruited in the meantime, light-hitting shortstop Swede Risberg and backup infielder Fred McMullen. According to Sycott's grand jury testimony, the men asked Sycott exactly what it would take for him to throw the series. Sycott sat back and weighed his options. He needed the money, but he also had to think about his own reputation, both as a pitcher and as a man of integrity. It was no easy decision. But after a few moments, Sycott eventually decided he was willing to do it for no less than $10,000. Chick Gandal grinned and told Sycott that the money wouldn't be a problem. With the team's ace pitcher on board, the scheme was now a go. They just needed more players signed up to make the series loss a sure thing. If Eddie Sycott was in for a penny, he was in for a pound. After committing to the plan, he agreed to help Gandal recruit others. The White Sox locker room was made up of several separate cliques, the most prominent led by all-star second baseman Eddie Collins. Collins and his friends would never be tempted to throw the series, so Gandal and Sycott didn't even try to recruit them. Instead, they focused on players they were already friends with. Sycott started with his roommate, power-hitting center fielder Happy Felsch. Gandal, meanwhile, made it his mission to try and get the legend himself, Shoeless Joe Jackson, on board. If they could get Jackson, the con would be a cakewalk. 32-year-old Shoeless Joe Jackson was an outsider in the clubhouse. He was a quiet, illiterate man who didn't quite fit in with either Eddie Collins' group or Chick Gandal's circle of friends. He mostly kept to himself. His best friend on the team was his roommate, Lefty Williams. Jackson was the best hitter on the team, leading the club in hits, RBIs, and batting average. His nickname, stemming from when he once took off his cleats on the base paths during a semi-pro game as a teenager, helped create Jackson's mythic reputation. Gandal offered Jackson $10,000 to throw the series, a pretty penny for a man earning only six grand. But Jackson declined the offer. A week later, Gandal offered Jackson 20000 Again, Jackson said no. While Jackson declined, his roommate, Lefty Williams, was more open to the idea. Gandal and Sycott, knowing how close Williams and Jackson were, treated Williams' participation as synonymous to Jackson's. When Williams met with Gandal, he said he spoke for Jackson, too. But even after hearing the pitch, Williams remained undecided. Well, there remains a debate over whether or not Shoeless Joe ever actually joined Gandal's plan to throw the series, but he was undoubtedly aware of the growing plot. On September 24, 1919, the Chicago White Sox clinched the American League pennant with a 6-5 win at home over the St. Louis Browns, their last win at home before the World Series began. Game one with the Cincinnati Reds awaited in one week. And for Chick Gandal, he had the necessary numbers to pull off his scheme. The fans on the south side of Chicago were ecstatic to watch their team compete for their second World Series in three years. But they knew it wouldn't be easy. 
the Reds had the best record in baseball that year and were attempting to win their first ever world championship. Though the White Sox were stacked, the Reds had the batting champion and the second winningest pitcher. Fans from Chicago and Cincinnati knew the upcoming series was sure to be a close and exciting match between the two best teams in baseball. But what they didn't know was that there might already be a plan in place to ensure that one side would win easily. The true integrity of baseball was about to be revealed. Coming up, the 1919 World Series begins. Now back to the story. Two days after the White Sox clinched the American League pennant and a date with the Cincinnati Reds at the 1919 World Series, star pitcher Eddie Sycott allegedly hosted a players' meeting in his hotel room a short distance away from the ballpark. With Chick Gandel there to support him, Sycott tried to convince the still undecided players. Buck Weaver, Happy Felsch, and starter Lefty Williams. All were intrigued by the money involved, but none were without their reservations. Adding to those reservations was the presence of two strangers in the room. One was Sport Sullivan, the famous Boston gambler Gandel had been in contact with. The other mysteriously declined to give his real name and simply introduced himself as Brown. The two of them were representatives of the gambling interests that would finance the series fixing. The unnamed man chose to use a pseudonym at the behest of the man he worked for. His boss wanted to have plausible deniability in case the entire scheme fell apart. The boss's name was Arnold Rothstein. Arnold Rothstein was a larger-than-life figure, a professional gambler whose legendary smarts and greed had turned him into one of the most infamous businessmen and mobsters in New York City. He was the perfect man to finance the series-fixing scheme. He was rich, well-connected, and ambitious. The amount of money it would take, around $100,000, was chump change to him, and the betting community knew it. The prestige of having enough power to fix something as high-profile as the World Series was what really motivated Rothstein. So when a friend of Chick Gandle approached him with the proposition, Rothstein was intrigued. He dispatched an associate to Chicago to meet the players and assess the possible risks of the operation. Of course, Rothstein maintained through the grand jury trial that he had refused to be a part of the fix, with either Sullivan or another gambler involved, Ava Tell, using his name to, quote, put it over. Rothstein was a powerful man with enough savvy and connections that he had never been convicted of any crime. So it's not a stretch to say that he had the connections to make sure he wouldn't get caught. Earlier in 1919, he had shot and wounded three policemen who tried to enter his gambling den. He was charged, but the case was dismissed by a judge who forced the police to officially apologize for bothering Rothstein's business. If the White Sox players took his money and failed to deliver, the consequences could be fatal. Back in Eddie Sycott's hotel room, the gamblers presented the players with their side of the bargain, the money. Like Sycott, Lefty Williams wanted $10,000. The gamblers were open to that amount but needed something else from Williams than just his participation. They needed him to convince Shoeless Joe Jackson, his roommate, to join the fix. 
For $10,000, Williams assured the gamblers that Jackson would be in. By the end of the meeting, Williams and Happy Felsch agreed to throw the series. The third participant, Buck Weaver, according to grand jury testimony, did not. He didn't trust the gamblers that were financing the fix, and he didn't trust that they'd pay what they promised. More importantly, though, Weaver simply didn't like the idea of throwing the World Series. He wanted to win. Even without Weaver, the conspirators thought they had enough players on board to sway the series and ensure that the Cincinnati Reds would win. On the day before the World Series was due to begin in Cincinnati, the group of seven players, all but Joe Jackson, allegedly met with associates of Arnold Rothstein's. The associates informed the players that $100,000 had been procured to pay them to fix the series. Assuming that Joe Jackson could eventually be convinced, the conspirators had the players they needed. They had the money, too. Now, all they had to do was figure out how to lose a World Series on purpose. As a way to increase interest and ticket revenue, the series was going to be a best of nine instead of the normal best of seven. It would potentially make the series more exciting for the fans, but more difficult to fix for the players involved. Well, if they played too poorly over a nine-game series, the fans and reporters would notice and suspect a fix. The players had to be careful and subtle. They had to pick and choose their spots. A key strikeout in a big situation here, a bobbled ground ball there. Eddie Sycott told the players that he wanted to win the second game he pitched, game four of the series, to help with his contract negotiation the following year. So it was decided that Sycott and the White Sox would lose the first two games in Cincinnati. There were two reasons to do this. First, losing in Cincinnati was more believable than losing at home in Chicago and would arouse less suspicion. Second, the gamblers promised to pay the players after every game lost. Losing the first games meant faster pay. When the players left the meeting, they were confident in their plan. The World Series would be won by Cincinnati. On October 1st, 1919, Cincinnati was abuzz with baseball fever. The entire city shut down to celebrate their beloved team and its first chance at a championship. Streets were closed off, employers canceled work, and the area around the ballpark was transformed into an impromptu festival. After the pageantry was out of the way, the players took the field to begin play. The series started with a leadoff single by White Sox right fielder Shane O'Collins, which was squandered after a failed bunt and a caught stealing from second batter Eddie Collins. With two outs and no one on, Buck Weaver came to the plate. Gandal and Sycott watched Buck Weaver closely. While Weaver needed the money as much as the rest of them, Sycott also knew that Weaver was a true competitor who may not be able to bring himself to fix the series. And to the gamblers at the game or listening on the radio, Weaver's first at-bat could be an important signal for whether or not the entire scheme could succeed. Would he actually decide to join the conspiracy or play it straight? Buck Weaver turned on a pitch and hit the ball hard. Sycott held his breath as he watched it sail deep into the left-center gap and land safely in the glove of a Reds outfielder. 
It was unclear if that was intentional or rotten luck. Regardless, Weaver was the third out. Sycott steadied himself and jogged out to the pitcher's mound for the bottom of the first inning. As he threw his warm-up pitches, he glanced at Buck Weaver and thought about the fix. After weeks of quiet planning, it was now down to Sycott to execute his end of the bargain and to reassure the gamblers watching and listening that he was good on his word. Sycott's first pitch was a well-placed fastball, a strike. It was a very good pitch, and Sycott knew that he had his stuff this game. If he wanted, he could pitch brilliantly. But he didn't want to. The $10,000 reward was burned into his brain. So he ignored his catcher's signal for a curveball and threw a fastball that landed right between the batter's shoulder blades. The grimacing Cincinnati batter jogged to first base on the hit-by-pitch. The Cincinnati fans let Sycott have it. It was an uncharacteristic slip-up from one of the best pitchers in baseball. He had hit only two batters the entire year, but it didn't necessarily arouse suspicion. After all, it was the World Series. The pressure was high. But Arnold Rothstein, Sports Sullivan, and the gamblers listening on the radio had a different interpretation for the hit-by-pitch, as did Chick Gandal. From first base, Gandal nodded to himself as he watched Sycott prepare for the next batter. He and the gamblers all knew what the hit meant. The fix was on. The next hitter, Jake Daubert, sent a line drive into right center field for a single, putting men on first and third with no outs. Sycott then gave up a deep fly ball, scoring a run on a sacrifice fly. Daubert was caught stealing, something Sycott couldn't control. He then walked the next batter before the inning ended on a ground ball. The reporters watching the game thought they had watched Sycott battle without his best stuff and narrowly avoid disaster. For Sycott, it couldn't have gone better. He allowed a run to score, but hadn't let it look too suspicious. The next half inning, the White Sox responded. Shoeless Joe Jackson reached on a throwing error, advancing to second base. Happy Felsch hit a grounder to first base and sacrificed himself for Jackson to get to third. Chick Gandel then hit a weak pop fly into center field, which found no man's land and dropped for a single, allowing Jackson to score. Well, despite his best efforts, Gandel had tied the game with a clutch hit. Sycott pitched two scoreless innings before unraveling in the fourth. With two outs, Sycott allowed five straight hits, scoring five runs, before the manager yanked him out of the game and replaced him with Roy Wilkinson. The reporters and sports writers were astonished by Sycott's bad performance, but chalked it up to the rumors of an injured shoulder and sluggishness in the unseasonal Cincinnati heat. The Cincinnati crowd was ecstatic as their team took a commanding 5-1 to one lead. Not much would change afterward as the damage was done. And in the end, Cincinnati took game one, nine runs to one. Immediately after the game, according to his own testimony, Sycott developed a splitting headache which wouldn't lessen the rest of the day. That night, he couldn't sleep a wink as the game and his successfully bad performance kept replaying in his head. For game two, starting pitcher Lefty Williams picked up where Sycott left off. After getting through three good innings, Williams started to fall apart in the bottom of the fourth. 
he walked three of the first five batters he faced before allowing Larry Kopf to bat a triple. The Chicago fans in the stands were shocked. On back-to-back days, their two top pitchers, both 20-game winners, had faltered badly. Lefty Williams' performance was especially strange. He had averaged 1.8 walks per nine innings through the season, then walked six in game two. When the smoke cleared, the White Sox had lost four to two. The two losses shocked the White Sox players that weren't in on the fix. They started to suspect something foul. White Sox catcher Ray Schock was furious. Not only had Lefty Williams pitched a bad game, but both Williams and Sycott had ignored his signals. Shock supposedly told his manager, Kid Gleason, that Sycott and Williams were behaving strangely on the mound. Though it had only been two games, whispers of a fix were already making the rounds. Gleason called a meeting with his players, directly addressing the rumors that some of them were throwing the series in exchange for a payday. He challenged anyone to step forward if they knew anything. No one stepped forward. The players all strongly declared that the rumors had no basis in fact. After the meeting, Gleason felt reassured by his team and firm in his belief that they were all on the level. But this wasn't enough for catcher Ray Shock. He wanted payback for what he'd witnessed the first two games of the series. So after the meeting, he waited outside the dugout for Lefty Williams. When Williams stepped out to head home for the night, the story goes, Shock jumped him. Their teammates rushed in to break up the fight, but not before Shock got his punches in and made his feelings known. If his teammates were trying to fix the series, he would stop them however he could. Shock later completely denied that the altercation ever took place. When we come back, the World Series moves to Chicago and doubts take hold among the conspirators. Now back to the story. The White Sox had lost the first two games of the 1919 World Series. The main conspirators in the plot to fix the series, pitcher Eddie Sycott, first baseman Chick Gandel, and at least four others, had done what they were paid to do, making key mistakes and errors to throw the games. After the losses, the locker room was in disarray. Many of the players were beginning to suspect that there was a conspiracy at play, that some of the team had agreed to throw the series, and they were right. The conspirators met in Chick Gandel's hotel room the night after Game 2 to receive their payment for successfully throwing the first two games. But Billy Burns, a former big leaguer who was acting as the intermediary between the conspirators and the gamblers, arrived with only $10,000 in cash, far less than what the players expected. Chick Gandel testily asked Burns if the gamblers were betraying them. Burns assured them that they weren't. It was just a minor delay. The players would still get all the money as promised. The thing was, Rothstein needed to collect his winnings from betting on the Reds first. This wasn't what the players had anticipated, and they became distrustful of the gamblers. At the same time, they were pot committed. It would be a bad idea to cross a man as powerful as Arnold Rothstein. The fix had to continue. However, there needed to be a change in the plan. Given the rumors among the other players, the conspirators decided that they should win Game 3. 
to allay suspicion as much as possible, and the win should include key contributions from those who are most suspected of being in on the fix. The White Sox took a tense train ride back to Chicago. The various cliques that defined the clubhouse before were even more segregated in the aftermath of the fight in Cincinnati. The crowds in Chicago were not as rowdy as the ones in Cincinnati, but the stands were still packed as the teams took the field on October 3, 1919, to play Game 3. The conspirators allowed themselves to play competitively, behind a dominant pitching performance by Dickie Kerr and clutch hits by several of the players on the take, the White Sox won three to nothing. Not only did the win lower the suspicion around the team, but it also adjusted the betting lines back to favoring the White Sox, setting Rostein and his associates up to make even more when the White Sox threw the next game. The game three win actually helped the con in the grand scheme of things. But immediately after game three, the gamblers were shaken. Several of them didn't know that the players were planning on winning Game 3 and had lost money. Did the conspirators change their minds? Well, just as the players didn't know whether the gamblers would pay them the promised $10,000 each, the gamblers were beginning to doubt the players were actually going to throw the series. Perhaps Game 4 would answer these lingering questions. Eddie Sycott took the mound for Game 4. Chicago fans were looking for Sycott to right the ship, to dispel rumors of the fix, to prove he wasn't still nursing a sore shoulder, and, more importantly, tie up the series. Sycott, on the other hand, had different concerns. He was worried that the gamblers were still holding out on paying them and knew that throwing Game 4 effectively might be the best way to make sure he'd get paid. But at the same time, Sycott had something to prove. He wasn't pitching to get his team back in the series that he had already committed to losing. He was pitching to prove that he was an ace, worthy of a larger contract for the next season. Sycott responded to these various pressures by pitching the best game of his World Series career, allowing only five hits and zero earned runs over nine complete innings. The Reds scored two runs as a result of fielding errors, both by Sycott. On the other end of the ball, however, the White Sox managed just three hits and were kept scoreless. The Reds won the game 2 to nothing and took a commanding lead in the World Series. It remains unclear whether Sycott actually intended to lose Game 4 or if he simply made costly errors. He threw the ball away on a routine ground ball, allowing a runner to reach first base, and then bobbled a cutoff throw on the very next play, allowing the same runner to score. Other than those two mistakes, Sycott played extremely well and proved that his pitching ability was still as impressive as ever. The night after Game 4, the distrust between the players and the gamblers reached a boiling point. The money still hadn't come through. Gandal informed Williams that the fix was off. If the gamblers weren't going to keep their end of the bargain and pay what was promised, they obviously couldn't trust any of them anymore. With so much money already on the line, the gamblers were desperate to keep the fix in place. After hearing of Gandalf's dismissal of the fix, Sports Sullivan reached out and tried to save the operation. He hastily wired $20,000 the day before Game 5 to prove that the gamblers could be trusted. By the skin of its teeth, the conspiracy remained alive. 
Gandal distributed the money to the players whom he still believed were committed to the scheme, including giving Lefty Williams 10000 five for Williams and five for Jackson. When Williams gave Jackson his $5,000, he told Jackson that he believed someone was holding out on them, either Gandal or the gamblers. Jackson told Williams he didn't trust Gandal and never did. Still, Jackson took the 5000 That night, Jackson told his wife about the money and the entire scheme. The revelation brought her to tears. Game five, intentionally or not, was a disaster for the White Sox. They were once again shut out on offense, while Lefty Williams gave up four runs in the sixth inning en route to a shutout loss. The only two White Sox players to manage a hit were the still angry catcher, Ray Schock, and the inscrutable Buck Weaver. On the train ride back to Cincinnati, Lefty Williams spoke to Eddie Sycott about the entire scheme. Williams wasn't happy with the money he'd gotten and no longer trusted the gandal. The only one in contact with the gamblers was being truthful. He told Sycott that for the rest of the series, he would play to win. Sycott was noncommittal. By now, he was torn between guilt and the desire to finish what he'd started. After a moment of thought, he told Lefty Williams that he, too, would play to win for the rest of the series. On October 7, 1919, the Reds were just one game away from winning their first championship. But before the game, Gandal demanded another 20000 from the gamblers. Gandal waited in his hotel room, increasingly nervous for a call from Sports Sullivan telling him the money was on its way. Hours passed, and the call never came. There was no money, so there would be no effort to throw game six. Yet, for the first four innings, the White Sox might as well have been throwing the game. Their offensive futility continued as they only managed two singles and no runs, while the Reds scored four. A Cincinnati crowd of 32,000 was getting loud and anxious. They were so close to the championship. In the fifth inning, the White Sox finally showed some life as they loaded the bases on two singles and a walk. Eddie Collins hit into a double play that scored a run, but ended the inning. They took that momentum into the next inning, scoring three runs on hits by Shoeless Joe Jackson, Happy Felsch, and Ray Schock. The game was tied at four. Each team's pitching took over after that, as they kept the bats quiet and no runs scored for the next three innings. The game went into extra innings. In the top of the 10th, Buck Weaver led off the inning with a double, moving to third on a single by Shoeless Joe Jackson. After Felsch struck out, Chick Gandal strode to the plate. This would be a perfect situation, Gandal thought, to throw a game. He could strike out, hit a weak pop-up, or ground into a double play. It was a high-pressure situation, and no one would suspect anything if he didn't come through. But Gandal didn't strike out. Instead, he roped a single into center field, scoring Weaver. The Reds weren't able to score in the bottom of the 10th, and the White Sox won the game 5-4. The series would continue. Game 7 was not another tight extra innings contest. In front of a strangely small Cincinnati crowd of 13,000, the White Sox took an early lead and never looked back. 
thanks in part to run-scoring singles each from shoeless Joe Jackson and Happy Felsch, the White Sox cruised to a 4-1 victory. On the other side of the ball, Eddie Sycott turned in his second straight pitching gem, allowing one run over nine innings. The game lasted barely an hour and 45 minutes. The series would return to Chicago for Game 8. October 9th, 1919 was a windy day in Chicago. Lefty Williams was starting for the White Sox and almost immediately lost the game and series when he gave up three runs in the first inning. By the time he was pulled out of the game with only one out on a pop fly, it was over. When shoeless Joe Jackson stepped into the batter's box in the bottom of the ninth, the score was 10 to five and the White Sox were down to their final out. Jackson hit a weak ground ball to second base. The crowd of 32,000 at Redlands Park exploded in joy as they watched Jackson get thrown out at first base. Their Cincinnati Reds had won the 1919 World Series. The White Sox players and coaches picked up their equipment and headed into the dugout. They had a long offseason ahead of them. The next day, the players returned to the ballpark to clean out their lockers. The mood was somber. Eddie Sycott found a note in his locker informing him that Charles Comiskey, the owner of the White Sox, wanted to see him. Sycott had no interest and left without saying a word to anyone else. As Sycott left in a hurry, he passed shoeless Joe Jackson, who was quietly preparing to drive home to his family. Jackson played well in the World Series. His batting average was 375, 24 points higher than his season average, and he had driven in six of the White Sox's 17 total runs, but he had still taken money from the conspirators and felt intense guilt over the series loss. He cleaned out his locker the day after the final game of the series and prepared to make the drive home. As Jackson finished packing, he thought about the $5,000 he had taken, about the fans that were devastated by the White Sox failure. Before he left, he knew there was something he had to do. Jackson made the short walk to White Sox owner Charles Comiskey's office. He was compelled to tell him what happened to his ball club and why they had lost the World Series. He knew that there would be consequences for what he and the other players had done. Even though he honestly played his hardest in the World Series and gave it his all, Jackson still felt as though he had betrayed his fellow players, his manager, the team's owner, and the fans. And he had to come clean. He had to unburden himself of his severe guilt. Jackson arrived at Comiskey's office and asked to see him. He told one of Comiskey's deputies that he had something very important to tell him. He had to tell Comiskey that the rumors were true. The White Sox had thrown the World Series. Little did he realize that soon, with or without unburdening his guilt, he and the other seven men would be embroiled in one of the biggest scandals in the history of professional sports. Thanks again for listening to Sports Criminals. We'll be back next week with part two of the Black Sox. We'll follow the fallout of the betting scandal and the consequences the players faced. 
You can find more episodes of Sports Criminals and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all your favorite ParCast originals, like Sports Criminals, for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Sports Criminals on Spotify, just open the app and type Sports Criminals in the search bar. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. We'll see you next time. Sports Criminals was created by Max Cutler and is a ParCast Studios original. It's executive produced by Max Cutler. Sound designed by Michael Langsner, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Travis Clark. This episode of Sports Criminals was written by Ryan Lee, with writing assistance by Abigail Cannon, and stars Tim Johnson and Carter Roy. Carter Roy.